Welcome to Farm Labs Audio Webinars. Today, first episode, Banking on Your Soul with Hamish Webb and Sam Duncan. All right, there we go. So we thought we thought might, we might throw up a little uh, video to get started. We did put that together over the weekend. Uh, and I noticed we, we have a few attendees here that probably aren't familiar, uh, too familiar with what we do. So uh, that's a, hopefully that, that explainer video helps, but um, that's not the point of today. The point of today is to uh, have a chat to uh, a good mate of mine, um, local farmer and uh, uh, partner at, hang on, I do have a whole bunch of notes here. Um, partner and director of Terra Protein Equity Partners, uh, which is an agricultural investor and advisory company founded in Edinburgh with ag tech and production investments in Chile, Africa and the US, um, Hamish Webb. So welcome Hamish. Uh, Thanks Sam, great to be here uh, with you. Super, yeah. super stoked to have you on mate. Um, Likewise. We'll just do a sound check. Can, you, can everyone hear me? Okay, that's all good? Great. And uh, hopefully you can see us as well. So yeah, the, the point of getting Hamish on today is um, Hey, uh, I'll let Hamish talk about his background and experience in a second. Um, look, we, I met Hamish probably two years ago here in Armidale. When we first started, we worked out at the lovely Smart Region Incubator at the UNE, uh, University of New England. And, um, you know, Hamish was one of the, the first guys I met really into ag tech um, and, uh, you know, really passionate about his soil as well. So he had a lot of thoughts on Farm Lab and, you know, throughout our... Our journey, he's given a lot of feedback. Um, in fact, we did the first case study, the first farm lab case study with uh, on Hamish's farm with, with Hamish and um, uh, Precision Pastures. So, Hamish, yeah, tell us a bit about yourself and your operation at Mindbar and, yeah, a bit about your background first because I think people find, you know, what I'm most interested in is that you're, you're sort of got that investment finance background, you've come into farming, so, you know, your picture of the world is, is you know, quite, quite unique. Uh, well, thanks, thanks, mate. Um, it's been it's been a lot of fun. I guess uh, what will probably be the most boring part of your webinar is, uh, <laughs> is a little bit of background, but I think it's important for a little bit of context. So, uh, I, I grew up on a sheep and cattle farm near Longreach in Western Queensland. My family are still there, but I went away and went and, and worked in uh, corporate finance uh, industry for um, almost ten years. Um, and, uh, and ended up in Edinburgh and Scotland working for a, a small agricultural private equity firm. Um, and, uh, and after a few years in that, uh, it, it became a company called Terra Protein Equity Partners, which I'm a, as you mentioned, I'm a partner of. And we effectively look for leading ag tech or ag production businesses, usually involved in animal protein production and, uh, and companies that are looking to grow. Usually by growing, they're looking to expand into new markets or raise, raise capital, often equity capital, and that's, that's what we do. And in the event that we, we uh, do a good job, we become a shareholder in that business. Uh, it's been a lot of fun, but being a country boy, and my wife's a country girl, we always wanted to get back to the land. And when we returned to Australia, we chose Armidale, and uh, we have a, a little property on the western side of Armidale. And I get to work on that and, and to come into town and 
we're partner of Terra Protein Equity Partners. So it's the best of both worlds. So that's, that's absolutely fascinating. Um, I'd be keen to hear a bit more about, uh, and you know, we've spoken about this in the past. You could just talk about the Dolly the Sheep. Um, <laughs> sure, in sure. Terms of that. <laughs> sure. So uh, it's a little over 20 years ago that the University of Edinburgh's Roslyn Institute created Dolly the Sheep, the world's first cloned mammal. Yep. Um, as breakthrough and as innovative as that creation was, um, they didn't really commercialise it much. And, and like a lot of research institutes, their very existence is predicated by their grant funding that they receive. And um, based in the UK, the UK is not uncommon. They have been, their, their grant funding has been reducing and reducing and reducing. And uh, we approached them, or they approached us in, in about 2014 and said, we just can't go on like this. We need to come up with a new funding model for our research. And so we suggested that they create a company called Rosalind Technologies, which actually uh, produces products and services, not just research, but takes them to commercialisation and sell those products and services and create their own revenue stream, which they can then put back into into research. And so, so I guess the key question here is, um, how many dollies do you got, do you have across your farm? <laughs> <laughs> um, none that'll live in the little teddy bear my son plays with. Top dolly, teddy, teddy bear sheep, but uh, an army of clones across uh, across <laughs> mine bar at the moment. No, tell us a bit. Tell us a bit about mine bar. So, um, you know, uh, it's not it's not a Sheep operation? Oh, no, it is. Actually. It is. Sorry, sheep it used to be cattle. cattle. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so it's uh, it's about uh, 25 minutes west of Armadale. Yeah. Um, and it's it's lighter country than the traditional New England. You know, people think of New England, they think of very heavy black basalt soils. Ours is very much lighter, um, typically a granite and, a, and an ironstone um, um, soil. But that actually suited us because we wanted to run sheep and more opportunistically um, uh, run cattle as well. Um, it, uh, it's, it, it's a, it's, we also do a little bit of cropping, a little bit of fodder cropping, um, but we only moved there about two or less than two years ago. And, you know, it struck me at the time when we were looking at it, I asked to see a bit of soil testing or some uh, to get an understanding of the soil and all i received was you know the history of fertilizer application not where it went but just the tonnage that was put on according to the notebook of the previous owner who was recommended yeah. <laughs> he could have told me anything and then just a little um a, a, a pdf of a soil test that was done no idea what location it was done yeah the various test results, and then a handwritten note down the bottom, these look okay, give me a call to discuss from as agronomist. So I had no idea what we were working with. That's fantastic. So how many of us have been in that position? You get kind of get handed over the, uh, you know, it's like, I mean, it's like any, any sort of real estate purchase as well. You kind of get handed it over with the minimal amount of information because, you know, they don't, they don't want to ruin their negotiating position in terms of, um, you know, the value of the, the property and the, the operation as well. So, yeah, that, uh, I remember seeing that, uh, seeing that report. Um, I was pretty gobsmacked and, um, you know, fortunately, we were working on farm lab at the time. So, <laughs> so look, you know, yeah, don't, don't do this again. So, okay, so, so that's really interesting, um, you know, just being given just, you know, 
there's some fairly abstract information about the soil. Um, so what have you done since? As in, how have you started to, I guess, uncover uh, what soil is there? I mean, maybe tell us about, a bit about your strategy, first of all, when you, you know, so you, you came in, the history of the property was a cattle operation. Mm. You start, you introduced sheep and uh, wanted to crop. So, I mean, what, what is your what is your strategy there moving forward? And what are yeah. you looking at doing soil-wise and just more broadly? Yeah. Uh, very originally, it was a sheep a sheep farm, as is common for a lot of now cattle farms across the country. They used to run a lot of sheep, yep. um, but about thirty years ago, they converted to cattle only, yep. and they were background in cattle for for feedlots. Um, so it was the infrastructure was fairly run down. Um, you know, the cattle were very selective in their grazing; they weren't cell grazed at all. So yep. Yeah, there was a there was a bit of a weed problem, um, but uh, as far as the soils go, I, I really, apart from you know identifying some of the sweeter country by what was growing there and where the cattle seemed to prefer previously because you could identify cattle pads, yep. I really had no idea what we were working with. So from the beginning, I wanted to get a good base level of understanding, starting from the beginning, to know what you know, zero point is. Yep. Um, you can you can only improve if you know what your starting base is. Right. You can't you can't manage manage what you don't measure. You know is the is the old adage. Yeah. Um, yeah so so and you know we were we were a part of that that initial sort of measurement phase where you know we went out uh, probably year year and a half ago now so mm -hmm. maybe a bit over a year ago just to to take some samples um, and that was to help you baseline baseline. You know the farm um, and and the soil across the farm. Uh, so since then, since the baselining activity, uh, what, what have you done since? Have you remeasured and um, you know how have you found the information you gathered from that first activity uh, yeah. to today? Yeah. Okay. Um, have a look. Well, going back to the very first samples, I mean, I, I did make some inquiries about how to how to go about the soil mm. sampling, and there was quite a different <laughs> different service provided uh, from you know a, a, a chemical reseller you know uh, an ag input provider let's call them that and yep. most country towns have got someone there that'll sell you chemical or fertilizer they you know, over the phone said oh you live out that way you'll you'll be you'll have a ph issue and probably low sulfur and you know just just buy this just do this no testing then i had a couple that would sort of come out quickly and just you know jump the fence and put a bit of dirt in a, in a bag then there were some that would do a, a fairly uh, um, a detailed transection of most of my paddocks and it was basically a a, a fairly it was a data-driven exercise but you know the paddock is this wide, yep. we yep. will put down eight samples across there. Yep. And then there was the farm lab or the farm lab and, and, and precision pastures um, process was, uh, we will use all technology available to, to us to understand the soil types and the soil type zones yep. to then work out yeah. the survey or the, the, the sample um, plan. And that was, for me, that was the, um, the the uh, piece of the pie that was missing. Instead of putting eight samples, a, a transection across this paddock, you yep. were able to tell me, well, clearly you've got two 
uh, distinct zones, this little five, five acres here and the, the other 120 acres here that's completely different soil type. So I only needed two, two samples in that case. That's good. So let's talk about the value of that moving forward. So, you know, you know, I mean, it's your farm, Hamish, uh, the variability. Um, you understand that, you know, one paddock has, you know, a huge variability in soil type. Uh, you have a lot of granite, granite on your property as well. So it's about, you know, what is it about? Why understand that variability? Why, why are you looking for, um, what, what, does that, what does that give you in terms of, you know, helping you manage your operation? Um, okay. I think it can probably help my profitability or help my business in, in, in three ways. One, it saves me money. For that example before, I'm doing two sample holes instead of eight to understand, yeah. understand my soil. Um, when I know the soil, uh, the, the, the soil type on a map, it helps with my variable rate application, for example, with lime. Yeah. I know that this, this whole zone, based on your, um, your mapping and that from EM38 surveys from Precision Pastures, we know that that area has got a greater conductivity, therefore I can use less, um, less lime yep. to reduce my pH yep. issue. Um, so there's, there's those two savings. The, the third one, which really only came, occurred to me after several conversations with you, was the benefit of um, you know, my bank account for my soils and what that could do for the value of my asset over time. Yeah. Obviously, if, I was to, if we were to sell it one day, and that may not be our intention, but let's say we were, I would have something far more substantial than just that you know, that, that PDF and, <laughs> and the, the scanned photocopies that are PDF of the soil test results, you know, just, uh, That's right. here you go, you know, future, you know, buyer of this property. Yeah. Right you, yeah. You will have a quite, and, and you know, quite, quite unique here. I think there are, you know, there are, it's not, not common that, that these, these resources are available just yet, but a full, full history of your soil and the changes in that soil over time. And so yeah. from that first ba baselining activity we did last year, you know, that's sort of, that's your, that's your baseline. But, you know, again, there were some soil samples taken this year as part of that EM38 survey. They've gone into your account as well. And so you'll be able to compare and contrast. Yeah. All right, well, you know, this paddock last year was this, this paddock this year is this. Take that to, take that to the bank. <laughs> you know, well, take that to the bank and say, look, I've improved my, my pastures. Look, why not? My evaluation. Why not, you know, as, as, uh, as part of our um, of our valuations, you know, I do actually have something now that I can show. Yeah. This has improved um, my pH level. I'm more likely to have my yeah. my um, my clover to be rhizoming, so I'm probably going to get more production. Yeah. If I can demonstrate that I've gone from six thousand dry sheep equivalent to eight thousand, that's a tangible, you know, valuable increase in my valuation. Now that might help with my with my my loan, my interest rate. Other savings, so. you know, in in I guess in the finance world, uh, when you're valuing companies, uh, as, you, as you as you do, you know, you look at a financial report and balance sheet, and some of the key key drivers of profit to assess the valuation of that business. So, mm. you know, it's just interesting thinking about well, why don't we do the same in agriculture? Why is sort of yeah. part of that balance sheet at the end of the day? Um, I know we've got a lot of uh, you know. 
lot of our um, uh, attendees here today that that are looking at that and are looking for sort of tools and ways to do that. And um, you know, that's that's sort of certainly what drives us in pharma to help mm. support that. Um, because you know, when it comes to understanding the full, not just the profitability, but the risk of your your operation, if you're not factoring into account your soil and mm. how it's changing over time, it's um, it's a real struggle. Um, I liken it a little bit to the introduction of estimated birth values. You know, highly data-driven analytics in I have, I livestock have, production. No, oh, okay, interesting. This is fascinating. I have no idea what estimated birth. I, well, you, you have you not have, not a cattle farmer. Sorry, guys. <laughs> you, have, you have two ways of assessing. Essentially, it's very simplified. But you have two ways of assessing an animal. You phenotypically assess it, you look at what its features are, its feet, its, its, um, its, its body shape, its head, its, you know, the actual bits and pieces that you have been taught that demonstrate a quality quality animal. Or you have genetic information, um, which is genetic markers which can say an animal is a, a prolific breeder mm. or it has excellent weight gain in the first 200 days or it, its progeny will be low birth weight and 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 these are they all have different various uh, levels of, of, of accuracy but they're getting quite very accurate now so you can look at an animal and you can just make your assessment that way or make it on a data on a database a, a, a data-driven decision exactly the same could happen with assessing properties. Yeah. You can just have a walk around and kick the fence post and see what you think. Or you could actually look at the data um, provided via, a, for example, a farm lab map mm. and actually look at what's happened to the soils, what has been put into them, any deficiencies, what are your roadblocks or your bottlenecks to get that production to where it should be. Yeah, fantastic. That's, uh, what a great analogy, Hamish. That's, uh, that's really interesting. Um, and one of the things we spoke about last time that we, we had a chat out at, at Mayan Bar was uh, carbon. You might mind touching on carbon? What are you, you know, and I think this is another area, I mean, we, we are very, you know, very big on, uh, we have a very big focus on Farm Lab. Um, you know, part of the reason we started Farm Lab was to help um, farmers better manage soil fertility. One of the key underlying, I guess, uh, uh, attributes there is soil carbon. Uh, you know, there's enough scientific evidence out there to show increases in soil carbon has huge, massive increases in soil moisture retention, nutrients, uh, you know, holding capacity, all that sort of stuff. So um, let's just let's just maybe segue into carbon for a second. Um, wanna, you know, you, this is an area that uh, I think is getting more, I guess, visibility, especially here in New England, but even across Australia with the Emissions Reduction Fund and there's some, uh, and look, for, for, for the audience's sake, we'll send out a summary of these, these notes, including what we're about to discuss now around emissions reduction fund um, uh, projects and you know, some, some more information about how to, how to enter those and how to access those. So um, you know, the obvious thing there being um, in ERF projects is that it can provide another source, another stream of revenue for the, for the farm business. Um, and something we've spoken about in the past. So let's just talk now about maybe carbon and your, your goals with carbon, mm. and what you've found to date across the property, maybe from those initial early days around soil carbon to yeah. today and how you think it's changed. Um, well, the first thing I'd say is I, I really am no expert on it, on carbon farming. I mean, I've, I've only just, uh, I'm very interested and in learning. I'm just trying to soak up as much as I can 
What I know is that um, the emission reduction fund, which has been increased, you know, it, it, it sets if it sets the industry at you know, a total potential value of almost six billion dollars, um, and we hear about the potential of carbon trading and um, you know, the setting of caps on major emitters and their only option being able to buy a carbon credit. So that sort of sets in place a, a potential market. So, so this is interesting. I think just for uh, comparison, the livestock industry across Australia is valued at $11 billion. So you know, to, to have a new, an entirely new industry market just stand up to be worth worth half of that of yeah. the livestock industry, more than some other agricultural sectors. That is, um, you know, there is huge potential there. That is really exciting. Um, it, it, it really is. And so that sort of got me to want to look at it a bit more. And, and, you know, people in the agricultural industry, as much as any industry, they talk to one another. And we started to observe that other people in the ag industry were being involved in it. Yeah. And there were previously two major or, or two ways that agricultural producers were involved in um, the creation of carbon credits that I was previously aware of. One was what's called sort of savannah burning, which is usually in northern Australia. Mm. My understanding in very simple terms is doing a, a, a cold weather climate, a cold weather fire a control burn or a fuel reduction burn versus a hot one and the difference in emission there that, that difference in emission can create a carbon credit, an accurate Australian carbon credit unit. The second method is revegetation. And these are, this is fairly straightforward. Um, removing a, 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 or changing a land use that now promotes increased vegetation. And this became quite popular in southwestern Queensland. Um, there's large areas there that are um, that are known as sort of mulga lands. Mulga is, a, is an edible protein-rich uh, tree, which is, uh, grows very well in those, those dry climates. Um, they're not, that's not applicable to us down here, but suddenly people started talking about soil carbon farming. And, uh, and that's what got me interested. The main reason I'm interested in that is because it does something that we're fundamentally bit, you receive the credits for doing something that we want to do anyway, and that's increasing your carbon levels in the soil. Uh, Revegetation is not only is it not applicable to here, but you have to take your stock off the farm. In soil carbon farming, you may well increase your stocking levels. You may increase your production to get more carbon levels, and that's that's what's very much excited us is by doing what we want to do anyway and potentially increasing our production, we could also be creating Australian carbon credit units for sales. That extra form of revenue we spoke about, isn't it? That's, yeah. that's absolutely brilliant. A fourth commodity, yeah, exactly. I know we're going to have uh, attendees with questions on this, so we'll, we'll save questions till the, till the end. But we, you know, hopefully Stephen Todd from Vault Farmers on the line, he's um, he's done a bit of work uh, on his own property to generate carbon credits and do a few few other things. Um, you know, there's some big people, uh, some large players in the, in the um, consulting space. We don't we don't recommend any single consultant. Um, so we'll let you, let 
you know, farmers who are on the line do their own research around that. We just say, treat it like a financial product, go out, do your research, find a consultant that works for you or a developer that works for you. There are some fantastic resources out there like, um, I, don't think, I don't know if we've got Louisa on the line from Carbon Farmers of Australia that can support, you know, give you access to, to more of the, you know, more information around how to get mm. into carbon credit projects. Now let's just come back to uh, the soil samples you've taken. So, you know, one of the questions we get uh, asked quite a lot is, you know, can I use the soil samples I've taken to enter into a soil carbon project? Fortunately, the answer is no, uh, unless you are registered um, with a project developer uh, or via a project developer as uh, with the government, as an ERF project, you can't use your existing soil sample, soil information to as to act as the baselining activity for that carbon project. But, and there's a big but here, um, uh, the, so where you measure soil carbon, it's a very statistical game. We're not gonna go in, into it today. Again, this is probably a conversation you should have with your, your consultant or your, your agronomist, but what you can glean from your historic data um, is where you're likely to improve carbon the most. Um, and I mean, I'm keen to, to get your thoughts on this in terms of just mine, but uh, mm. from the soil test that you've done, from what you know about the property, from being there, being there today, mm. have you got specific areas? And, and the other thing here is that it's not, you know, improving carbon isn't just a matter of throwing some more mm. fertilizer out there mm. or some organic fertilizer out there and just getting improvements. There are, you know, there's quite a bit of management required to actually get increases in soil carbon over time mm. to, to benefit from carbon credits. It's not all, you know, it's not all magical $60 million market. So, mm. you know, so where you do that is it's got to be quite strategic, right? Like you kind of, you don't want to chuck out just organic fertilizer over every single paddock you've got and just hope for improvement. You mm. want to kind of be a bit more surgical about it. Can you tell mm. us about your thoughts on, on that yeah. and what you've measured today around? Um, yeah, sure. Um, so we conducted our, our measurements early last year sometime. And the interesting thing is I wasn't even thinking carbon farming. I hadn't even entered my mind at that stage. None of us were, yeah. <laughs> but coincidentally, it was one of the results that came back, which is a fairly common one, yep. carbon content. And, um, and so as I started to research a bit more about um, carbon farming, I thought, you know, I've actually got some fairly unproductive parts of land. I'd yep. be happy to, 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 to fence them or change their production to, to use them for the generation of Australian carbon credit units and, and make some um, production out of them that way. What was really interesting was when I went back through your, the results from the, the, the testing, um, some of my least productive country um, actually had very high levels or, or you know, higher than some of my other farming areas. And particularly my arable country was very low in carbon, yeah. very low. And in actual fact, the opposite is true. So the, the, low, the more productive country, the arable country where I grow my oat crops and where I'm looking to improve, that's where I had low carbon and I could increase it significantly. You know, like, this is good. This is good because I mean, what we're looking for, what you what you'd be looking for in a carbon project is, you know, the increase is increasing it, increasing your um, soil carbon by one, two, maybe more percent. I mean, one percent is probably a, uh, you know, probably what, what we're looking at in New England with the climate, um, unless climate change hits and we start growing bananas here in the next uh, next five years. But, um, uh, you know, so that's important because you don't want to, again, bang for your buck, you don't want to start trying to improve those areas of your farm that have high 
carbon, probably due to you know them being the native. That's probably you know those areas, and I know the areas you're talking about, the big bat paddock, yeah, way down, yeah, uh, yeah, down south. They're probably closer to the sort of the native, um, you know, the native levels of soil, soil organic carbon. So that's why they're a bit higher. They haven't been grazed as much, and um, you know, exactly right. Yeah, yeah, it's quite interesting. So uh, we're on twelve o'clock now. We we thought we might open up to questions. Um, so we've got two options. Uh, if you want to chuck them in the chat and then we might get uh, Florian to, to read them out. Um, or you can uh, just chat out and rudely interrupt, which I'm more than happy of, with because I do it all the time. So, um, <laughs> so, uh, so fire away um, if there's anything else. Yep. Any questions so far? Check the check the chat there. Stick them in the chat if you've got them. This um, might might mean we can wrap it on for a little yeah, bit longer. We can always wrap it on. Uh, Florian, is there anything uh, you want to hear a bit more of? Um, well, so you mentioned um, the strategic um, advantage that you gain over time when you have a look on your carbon levels and see that there are areas you mentioned that um, Hamish that there are areas um, where you didn't expect carbon to improve but actually did but um, what is the what would be the next steps for you then to initialize a carbon project how does that work for you um, what it what is the what is the strategic approach and also what are the actual steps then yeah, um, so initially um, we, we went to agronomists and we asked them for their, their view on carbon farming. Um, I guess a lot of them were at the same stage as us. They were just trying to understand and, 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 and work it out themselves. And there was a fairly varying degree of um, you know, enthusiasm for it. One of them said, look, 90% of the carbon you create is, is determined by the rainfall, so you can't do much yourself to change it. But what we ended up doing was um, we, we did, as Sam suggested, you know, we contacted advisors, we contacted um, agents or, you know, I guess, the brokers that are involved in the industry and yep. we researched how do they create projects? How do they remunerate themselves? Um, is there a fee for service? Is there a commission based on the sale proceeds of our units? Do they want to lock us into some sort of upfront contract? How does all of that work? Yeah. Uh, and then we did actually get some success with one of our, uh, with our agronomist, um, Precision Pastures, who you mm. mentioned before, they are undertaking um, some trials and, and asked if we'd be interested to be a part of it to basically look at our country, some, uh, some designated areas, and to determine the feasibility of a carbon farming project on our farm. So to answer your question, we, we put ourselves out there to, to learn more, to seek an advisor or seek a, a provider, and we talked very closely to our agronomist. Mm. Yeah, very good. Um, I got a question in the chat from uh, yeah. from Simon, um, and this is about more 
uh, about plants, how to build soil carbon. So what are the methods there? Um, what are you using, animals and time? And what are other methods to improve carbon in the soil? Can you talk a little bit about that? Wire and water, right? That's, that's what we were talking about just before. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah. you mentioned it. I mean, um, especially in this in this climate, in this region. I guess, yeah, I guess it is dependent upon a few things: your your climate, your um, your existing soil types. But for us, uh, yeah, we're looking at a fairly holistic approach to cell grazing. So, our livestock management. So, we need to look at our wire wire and water. Um, but also potentially changing our, um, our species, um, our, our grass species. And okay. to put a bit more understanding, so our, our traditional natives, uh, we're looking at rotating them into um, more of a subtropical with some greater, um, a much greater um, biomass production. And you know, the, with cell grazing, there's a fairly simple adage, you know, you want them to eat a third, trample a third, leave a third. And so if we're increasing our biomass production and, uh, and we're putting it back into the soil through heavy movement of, and repeated movement, um, hopefully that'll give us the, the carbon improvement. There's, there are a few resources online. Uh, there's one from New South Wales DPI, which is a really great resource around, you know, what, the biggest bang for buck is, is a, in terms of management approaches to increasing soil carbon. So we'll put some of those in, in our um, uh, resource pack uh, and summary pack after this. So we'll get those out to the attendees um, straight after this. Um, certainly that New South Wales DPI one is one that comes to mind. It's, um, uh, you know, it's got some very good information based on some, you know, some good scientific studies around what, what management practices are likely to increase soil carbon the most. Mm. Um, you know, unfortunately for a lot of, <laughs> fortunately, I think the biggest bang for buck is converting a cropping, uh, cropped paddock into a, into a grazed paddock. Um, but it doesn't help people. Um, it, it doesn't have that. I, I understand it doesn't help most grazers, uh, uh, livestock uh, owners in the region. Um, yeah, yeah. I think, but I, I think that we're going to learn more and more about this. I think as more projects happen, I've, I've heard a lot about, um, you know, spreading of manure. Mm. Um, yeah, that's that's you couldn't get much more carbon-rich yeah, right. organic that's, matter. Yeah. Uh, so where you have the ability to do that, whether it's chicken or cattle. Yeah. Um, so we're going to have a look at that as well. Uh, we do have some crop cropping areas that have obviously just been dry land cropping. So yeah. whether we could look at maybe rotating them to a more permanent pasture yeah. um, and then cell grazing. So rather than repeatedly sort of flogging the, 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 the pastures and getting, uh, taking that carbon out, putting it back in for yeah. at least a period of sort of five to ten, five to seven years, maybe 10 years. Yeah, yeah great. Thanks, Hamish. I've got another question here from Harriet. Um, so uh, the soil quality tracking is obviously beneficial for both farmers and the wider economy in the long term. Is this something that the government would ever show interest in subsidizing or supporting through other means to make the tech more accessible to more farmers in Australia wide? Yeah, really good question. Great question. So, yeah, okay, so uh, I might start and get your thoughts on this, Hamish. Um, so our, our, our view at FarmLab is that... Of course they should. Of course they should, and, um, we wanna, but we also want to make our tools as accessible to, to any farmer out there as possible. I mean, we see ourselves as a bank account for soil, um, uh, you know, the only 
we've actually just undergone a pretty rapid um, change in our pricing model to make it a bit more suitable, you know, a bit more um, accessible uh, for that exact reason. So uh, I can talk about our pricing model later. Basically, it's we'll try to make it as cheap as, cheaper than a Netflix subscription. So Farmlab now costs $15 a month billed annually at $180 a year to the farmer. Um, and then through that, all of that soil information is banked. We just need to work with the agronomist to make sure it's all it's all kept there nice and safe. Uh, now, having said, you know, the other part of that question was government subsidies. Uh, so there is, uh, there is now talk, I don't know if it's official yet, but the government are now looking at subsidising um, entry into ERF carbon projects. Uh, by providing the farmer with up to a five grand subsidy for the cost of baselining their soil carbon for that project. Now, it sounds like a lot, um, and for you know most, you know five grand is you know five grand is, is a lot of money. However, you know the baselining activity itself still costs in the vicinity of forty to fifty thousand dollars, given the size that you're looking at. Forty to fifty thousand would probably be two hundred hectares plus, maybe one hundred fifty hectares plus. Um, but certainly subsidising 10% of that cost is, is, a, is a good starting point. Um, certainly I think they could go further and maybe not just subsidise, but maybe provide upfront loans to farmers that want to get into these projects. Um, there's a whole lot of activity going on uh, at the moment. There, are, um, there is a soil carbon working group uh, working on this right now. Um, I think Stephen Warnkin uh, is heading this up. And, uh, and feeding or providing all this feedback to the government on, on that. So, yep, um, I'll hand over to Hamish because he can give you a bit of a, an insight from the growers' perspective in terms of costs and what you're seeing, seeing today. Um, yeah, a, a really good question. Um, I, I don't, let me put it this way, I don't think we'd be waiting to see a government, um, if there is a government subsidy, uh, because who knows when that might be. And... Um, I guess personally, you know, I, I think that those that are willing to have a go at it uh, early um, before costs of bench, benchmarking or bench line, baselining can come down, and let's assume that it will come down as people get more familiar with the protocol, there are more people able to undertake the baseline survey testing, let's assume that that cost will get cheaper. By that time, those that have committed early will hopefully be generating credits yeah. and, and they might have an early now, there's something, advantage. So there's something else to this as well, which is, you know, if you're, if you're measuring your carbon for the first time when you're baselining, um, you know, that's, it's almost, it's not too late, but you really want to be collecting, you know, through, you want to collect that soil information now so that you know, and back to Hamish's point, you know where you're likely to improve carbon, but you're also you're also likely to uh, to know what's going to work on your property and where it's going to work. So one of the things we, we sort of have spoken about is the benefit of, you know, looking at the changes in carbon and maybe looking at that snapshot of where is my carbon good, where's it bad. But if you're built, if you've been analysing that, not even analysing it, but just looking at it year after year and saying, all right, well, last year I did this to this paddock, didn't really have my, you know, this year my carbon readings are this, it doesn't really, didn't really have much of an effect. When it comes time for you to enter into a project, an ERF project, or even if you've got a relatively small, small operation, less than 100 hectares, you know, you're still well poised to then actually say, look, I know what works on my property in terms of increasing soil carbon. Um, and that, yeah. that, there's something, I think there's something to that too. You know? Yeah, that's, that's a good point. Um, the, the last thing I'd say, I mean, uh, uh, who knows if 
if it ever would be something that a government would subsidise. Again, this is just a personal viewpoint, but, you know, subsidies, I think they can disrupt the market equilibrium and, you know, subsidies that might have been given, a, might have been installed initially for a good intention can have bad outcomes. You might fundamentally increase the price because the amount of service providers that come into it mm. soak up that subsidy as as has happened with freight subsidies that effectively put seventy dollars onto the price of hay homeowners first homeowners grant homeowners um, grant yeah so yeah. now that doesn't have to happen here it might be structured in a better way but what i would prefer to see is market driven incentives to bring down the cost or help with the cost or take over the cost of baselining such as if if um the the big emitters you know I, don't know who, I won't name them, but let's say there is company X that knows that it's going to need to a significant amount of carbon credits in the future. Why wouldn't they commit to funding my or a group of uh, farmers in the area for baseline, uh, the baseline survey for the cost of that uh, for the right, perhaps the first right to acquire those credits or, or perhaps an option to acquire those credits in the future. At a set rate. At a, at a, at a set rate. So I might have, um, I might be giving up some of the upside in what the, what I could be selling them for, but I don't have to fork out the cost of the baseline. Something like that, mm. I'd probably prefer than a, than a subsidy, I think. Yeah, better market incentives, I like it. That's very interesting. Thanks, guys. Um, I have another question here from Simon. Uh, Hamish, can you talk about the value of soy carbon as an income stream to investors that you work with at TerraProtein? I think you already started mentioning it, but um, can you um, get a little mm. bit closer to that? Is there some, something you can add to this? Yeah, um, it's a really good question, Simon. Um, we don't actually have, the Terra Protein doesn't actually have any live carbon credit projects. However, um, we do have a, 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 a substantial pork business in Chile, which has to deal with its waste, its pork slurry waste. And they've identified that they are uh, potentially able to generate carbon credits. Um, unquantified at this stage um but they're, they're they're basically they're allowed to put two tons of waste per acre in chile that's the current standards they're adopting not just international standards they're not just european but best in class which is danish pork waste removal and it's about 140 kilograms of waste per acre and they think that that difference could be able to generate a credit uh, but to give you some numbers, Simon, um, and, and these are not my numbers, but I did see this in a, a presentation recently in Australia about um, soil carbon farming, that on current um, uh, market prices for Australian carbon credit units, uh, on one hectare, if you're increasing the carbon content by 1%, you can generate sufficient Accus to be worth around $15,000. Now, that got everyone very excited, $15,000 per hectare per 1% that you've increased. But what's not clear is how long, how expensive it will be to 
get that 1% increase. And that's what we don't know yet. A big challenge in how to do it. I think there's one other thing to that question as well, which we've been thinking about in Farm, farm Lab, which is, I mean, you know, that, that's absolutely critical, um, but it means that, you know, there's a, there's a minimum size of the farm that you know, and we, we, we know this today, that you kind of need to have in order to enter a carbon project and be able to profit from it um, and manage risk. How do we, how do we incentivize the small, or how do we give programs and give assistance to the smaller farm holders, um, you know, the hobby farmers, the farmers with less than 100 hectares to enter these, enter these projects, um, or not even enter projects, but benefit from improving soil carbon. So there, there, there is one other thing, and one other little thing we're looking at doing in Farm Lab um, is that we want to work with, we want to work with your buyers. Um, so if you're selling produce to, to Woolworths, and you're storing your soil carbon data in Farm Lab um, to give them a tool to prove the provenance, but also not just the provenance, but the the, your your means of improving, or that you've actually increased soil carbon to then sell your product as a carbon neutral, yeah. carbon negative product. And that's something we don't think about all the time, but something that is becoming more and more popular, or not popular, but it's starting to get out there more as, you know, this, consumers want carbon neutral, carbon negative foods and produce. So if we can support you in providing, you know, a, your, a tick of approval to show that you've increased uh, soil carbon, when you sold, when you were producing that, um, you know, that, you know those head of cattle, um, I think that could also be a really valuable income stream in, in adding attaching that premium to your your product. And um, yeah, yeah, that's that's very interesting. A, a, a producer recently that I, I was speaking to um, told me that they were doing a project and they were actually looking at selling branded. Um, Accus, fantastic. So not just not just vanilla um, Australian carbon credit units. They were doing their own branded version. Yep. You know, and it just got me thinking. You know, they were looking for a premium yep. on just the, the the current market, and and they said, why not? You know, in future, you know, I don't know, an airline magazine. You could be reading about their program to to keep their carbon to keep their carbon neutral footprint and yep. one of the projects they've invested in is this soil sequestration yep. project or yep. revegetation where they're revegetating with eucalypts yep. in a koala habitat you know brand value goodwill just yes. exploding all over yes. the place yep. Yep. Uh, but i thought that was very interesting a branded acu mm. yeah fantastic all right um yeah, I don't have any new questions here. Is there um, any other thing you would like to add? I, I might have any, another question. Anyone want to shout out? Anyone got anything they want to shout out? No. This, oh, yeah. I got, I got another one here. Um, the Soil Key Project in Drawing, which created the world's first accus, make about 10 tons per hectare at $16 a Q. Yep. It's from Stephen Todd. Yeah, so that's just, that's an, another am, match. Thanks, Stephen. Yeah, good. Thank I'm you. glad you're on that, Steve. I'm, I did mention Bolt Farmer before. So, yes, thank you. And, yeah, uh, you know, great, great product there. We don't recommend any products, but certainly the Soil Key has been, um, got some, you know, certain evidence, you know, there's definitely some evidence there from, from the work that uh, AgriProof have done. Um, yeah, great. Uh, any other comments? I think, um, uh, so shout out, um, but 
I mean, thank you very much for your time, Hamish. Um, I really appreciate it. I think I've learned a whole bunch of stuff here. Uh, if anyone has any other questions, look, we'll send you out a bit of a, an information pack. Um, being a bit, you know, very focused on soil carbon today, but, you know, there's also just the benefit of actually improve, you know, just banking that soil information for, for you know, to understand the management, your impact on the, of management practices on your, on your soil fertility and adding to the farm asset over the long run. You've done a really great job at explaining that. And um, yeah, looking forward to uh, heading out to Mine Bar for some future sampling. <laughs> can't, wait. can't wait, Sam. We've got plenty, for, plenty of it for you. Wonderful, wonderful. All right, well, um, you can get in touch with us at uh, info at farmlab.com.au uh, or, you know, you can welcome to trial software for free at www.farmlab.com.au. And um, yeah, look forward to hearing from you. So thanks very much, everyone. Thank you. Thanks, guys.